Good morning and welcome to Stories in Public Health. I'm your host, Emily Dieter, and today I've come back to my old stomping ground, the University of New South Wales, uh, to interview Dr. Darren Saunders. Uh, he's a medical researcher who focuses on cancer biology. He's also a science communicator and senior lecturer in medicine at the University of New South Wales. Um, and he's also a visiting fellow at the Kinghorn Cancer Centre at, at the Garvin Institute. No, is that not, not anymore? anymore? He was, sorry. <laughs> My um, Googling didn't do very well today. <laughs> and he's also won a number of awards. In 2010, he won the New South Wales Life Scientist Research Award. And in 2012, he was awarded the Australian Leadership Award. Thank you for joining us, Darren. Thanks for having me. Uh, so as I mentioned before the podcast, we might start um, by maybe talking us through some of your current research in less academic terms. Um, I did try and read your... Um, Nature Communications paper, and I admitted to you that <laughs> I did not, as a non-biologist, understand much of it. Yeah, it's pretty heavy going science. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, I guess we actually work in, in kind of two spaces, um, but they're tied together at the molecular level. So predominantly we're a cancer biology group. We work on cancer biology, and we focus mostly on pancreatic and breast cancer. Um, not exclusively, but mostly. And we're kind of interested in two aspects of, of those cancers. One is um, the metabolism of those cancers and how cancer cells reprogram their metabolism so they use fuel differently to drive cell proliferation and interested in how that interacts with things like obesity and metabolic syndrome and diabetes and how all the different um, aspects of that disease come together at the metabolic level. And so we've published a few papers recently in breast and pancreatic cancer looking at that. Um, and also understanding how um, in both pancreatic and breast cancer, the cancer cells interact with the cells around them, called the stromal cells. So there's a whole bunch of other cells, you know, breast cancer cells are swimming around in fat cells. And metabolically, that's really important. And so we're really interested in looking at how the cancer cells talk to the cells around them, get metabolic fuel, help them to invade into new tissue spaces and things like that. Okay, and does that kind of information lead on to help with new treatments? Yeah, or is that's it just, the idea. Yeah, that's the, the idea. idea is to understand both how, you know, because obesity and diabetes are risk factors for these diseases, to understand how that is driven at the molecular level, but mostly to try and uncover new metabolic targets for therapy. So there's a bunch of really useful compounds out there to treat some of these metabolic syndromes and that hit metabolic enzymes really nicely. And we're looking at if we might be able to reprogram and repurpose those in cancer. Oh, wow, that's such important work. It's interesting, yeah, yeah. But that's, and that's only one aspect. Right? We've got a whole other aspect of work that is looks at how proteins are dealt with in the cell and how cells under stress need to be able to deal with misfolded proteins and mutated proteins. Um, and that's also an interesting sort of therapeutic space. And that's led us to work in motor neuron disease as well, where a similar kind of process is, is working at the, the really deep level in, in motor neuron disease. So that's more general, that side? No, it's just more molecular. So it's, it's a sort of common, um, common process that all the cells in your body have as kind of a way of taking out the trash or recycling the trash. Yeah. And, you know, in cancer cells, we can target that system to try and kill the cells. And more recently, we've shown that in brain cells in motor neuron disease, we can target that system, give it extra capacity, and keep brain cells alive for longer when they have mutations that cause motor oh, neuron disease. Oh, that's great. So it's kind of interesting. Yeah, that's really flip, interesting. between keeping cells alive and killing them. Um, can I ask you a silly question? No such thing. <laughs> you might think twice after <laughs> this. Um, what's it like working in cancer? I've always been a little bit scared of cancer epidemiology because I feel like if I think about it every day, I'm going to start getting, like really obsessed with myself and worry that I'm going to yeah. get it. Do you ever think, do you think about it a lot? I think about it all the time. Um, not in the way you're saying yeah. though. It, um, you know, working in a fatal, horrible disease that affects lots of people, you know, lifetime risk one in three of getting cancer. Yeah. Um, everybody deals with cancer. 
you know, you, when you get you get to a certain point of your life where your people of your parents' age start to get lots of these nasty diseases, yeah. so you're constantly faced with it. And, and I've written about this before, the challenges of working in a space where you don't feel like you're making progress fast enough to help the people around you. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I thought that was confronting in cancer, and it, it is quite confronting in cancer, but in motor neuron disease it's even even more confronting because the disease progresses so rapidly and there's literally nothing we can do for these people at this point. Um, and so, you know, I was, you know, this notion that boys don't cry, I was at a meeting conference last week on motor neuron disease and I found myself in the lift in tears at one point just from sitting there listening to the case studies um, and knowing in, in quite, you know, close detail how this disease plays out, knowing that we're, you know, racing to try and come up with new therapies but not racing fast enough yeah and it has a it has it actually it doesn't make you feel like you're constantly worried about risk factors and things so it's less from an epidemiological perspective i find professionally it starts to make me very impatient and i start to get really narky with people who get in the way yeah so filling out forms doing lots of unnecessary paperwork really starts to irk me because that's not time i'm spending doing research to help people that have got this disease yeah so I can, find that actually is the most difficult part of it i can understand that yeah yeah wow it's very interesting work um gets me out of bed in the morning yeah <laughs> yeah and i really like how open you are about things and i think it's also important that you're saying about the case studies i've interviewed quite a few people in terms of advocacy mm-hmm. and they they all say one thing in common which is tell the personal stories don't just give people numbers because that's what really speaks to people it sounds like that's the case for you i think this is really important and you know, I do a fair bit of speaking about and writing about science for sort of non-scientific audiences while I try to do it for non-scientific audiences. And I think that's the key is to, is to do it through that personal, you know, speak to people's emotions and speak to that sort of personal narrative rather than just bombarding people with facts. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I've seen the flip side of this. That same meeting I was at last week, um, you know, one of, uh, quite a well-known scientist in the field stood up and was very matter-of-fact and very kind of, you know, that classic scientific language that we all use casually you know we don't think about it um and was actually there were people in the audience suffering from that disease there were people in the audience whose family were suffering from that disease and i could see quite a couple of them got visibly upset at one point just because of it was not obviously not deliberate but there was a sort of casual use of very confronting language around knowing genetic risk and being able to do anything about that and it was quite upsetting for those people so i think there's a real onus on scientists to be more aware of power that our words can have in that more public space yeah i agree and that actually leads on very well to the next thing that i want to talk to you about so you do do a lot of science communication and that's how i first came in contact with you You came Mm. and gave a lovely talk at our um at work at macquarie university um to you know talk to us about how we talk to the media so you do a lot of media and things like that um and i guess i'm my first two questions would be first of all how did you get into that and then secondly why do you think it's important so i think before we even start, there's a, there's a point about science communication that I think is worth restating. And there are swathes of professional science communicators. These are people that are trained with communication skills. They're trained in taking information and presenting it to, you know, other, to other audiences. I don't see myself as one of those people. Okay. I'm, I'm a scientist first and foremost. And I think it's an inherent part of being a scientist is that you need to be able to communicate what you do, both to your colleagues and professionally, but also outside of that. Yeah. And so... I really kind of balk at the term science communicator when you're talking to professional scientists because I feel it's actually just part of the job. It's like saying um, someone needs to do experiments and write papers and write grants. It's just part of being a scientist. If If you do the work and you don't tell anybody about it, there's kind of no point doing it. Yeah, I agree, but I would suggest that's kind of a different view than a lot of scientists have 
Um, yeah. I think from my experience, I, I think in, in research we're kind of in a bubble and also I think as scientists a lot of us aren't very, um, you know, comfortable speaking um, and things like that. And it's not necessarily universities um, in the structure of promotions and things like that. So is that a personal thing or have you had encouragement from your superiors? Um, I, no, it's much. It's definitely a personal thing. Um, and you're right, one of the biggest hurdles to get over is that as a scientist um, or a public health professional or whatever, um, the structures that we work under, the sort of promotion indicators and all the things that we get recognised for don't really incorporate that sort of effort of communicating to general audiences. It's very hard to capture that in our performance metrics and stuff. Yeah. So that is a big challenge, right? Because it, it takes time to do well and that time is not necessarily reflected back in what you're rewarded for. So that's, that's definitely a challenge. Um, getting back to the point of scientists communicating, not all scientists are good communicators and I think it's important to recognise that. True. But I think that's also a bit of a cop-out because you can train, it's a skill, right? You can learn to do it and you don't have to be out there doing it in front of lots of people. You could be something as simple as talking at a small public forum. Yeah. Um, you know, it doesn't have to be on the radio or on the TV or whatever the case may be. You know, there are lots of different ways of communicating science to people that don't normally get to hear about science. It could be simple as talking to people at a barbecue, you know. Yeah, that's true. Um, and I think it, the onus is on scientists to do that. You know, most of us are funded with public funds. We have an onus to tell people what we do with those public funds. And that trades off downstream. You won't see it. You can't draw a direct line between the conversation you have with somebody about your research and funding. But if people see value in what we do and they think it's worthwhile, they'll support politicians putting funding into into research. So there's, you know, indirect things down the down the line I think yeah absolutely yeah and so is that why you think it's important um, I think it's important for that reason yes yeah. definitely I think with, there's a responsibility of us to tell people what we do with the money that they give us to do research um, but I also in the health space particularly in the cancer space and I think that's where I first started getting into this there's an awful lot of people out there flogging really dodgy ideas and yeah. really dangerous ideas um, you know, and we can all think of, there's lots of, plenty of famous examples, I don't even need to name names, we can all think of them, you know, sharks and charlatans out there. Yeah. Um, and so I guess I first started getting interested in this as a way of trying to push back against that, and not by just responding and going, well that's crap, you can't say that, this is the truth, um, not about that, more in building sort of with a sort of long game in mind of making scientists appear more human and more trustworthy, just like the kind of people that get lots of attention yeah. for, their, for their snake oil, you know. Yeah, that's really true, actually. Yeah. Um, I, I One of my specialties is vaccines, and um, I think that's, yeah, it's a really important yeah. space. I was actually reflecting on the way here to meet you. Um, that is something I think we still don't do well. Um, I was walking with my mum over Christmas down the beach, and she had a question about some sort of vaccine that she'd heard some bad information about that it didn't work or yeah. something like that. I can't remember exactly. Um, but then when I explained it to her and I said, it doesn't work all the time, but this is why it's still important, it's still safe, and um, even if you do get it, you'll probably get a less severe, you know, so I gave her all the information, and she just looked at me and she said, yeah, it sounds fine when you explain it to me, but we don't get that information, we just see all these different funding changes and the government changing things all the time and we don't understand. Yep. Um, so yeah, I think if I could have that conversation that I had with my mum and other people could hear it, that would probably be useful. Right. Exactly, but what doesn't work, and this is, I mean, this is kind of ironic, right? Scientists are really good at ignoring the science behind what makes effective communication. That's and so I, and true. That's <laughs> such an irony. You know, there are, there are some amazing people, scholars of scientific communication or communication more broadly, who study what works and what doesn't mm -hmm. and who study effective methods for communicating. 
and they're amazing. You know, they do an amazing job. And I mean, look at the advertising world, right? The advertising world's full of people who understand yeah. how to do this really well. And scientists largely ignore most of the evidence base around that, which is kind of stupid. When you yeah, since everything we do is evidence based. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. You know, so we know shouting facts at people that doesn't work. You know, um, even something as simple as someone starts spreading a myth and you start restating the myth as a way of trying to fight back against it, that actually enhances the myth in a yeah. lot of brain. So there's, there's all sorts of interesting science around that we ignore. I've, I've only just started really touching on the surface of that um, and, and getting an understanding of it. Well, that's a good tip because I haven't read any of that and I have a podcast, so I probably should read it. <laughs> yeah, and there are some great resources around out there. Um, um, and I can't remember off the top of my head the names of them, but there are some fantastic resources okay. around about how to communicate effectively. In that Excellent. Space. I'll have to look into it. I'm yeah. obviously guilty of what you're just describing. Yeah, and, and, you know, all of the professional communicators around that do this for a job, you yeah. need to work with them, right? They know what they're doing. Yeah, that's be, true. We should be collaborating with them to get this out. Yeah, that's a really good point. Thank yeah. you. I always learn stuff when I do these interviews. That's why I like them. <laughs> <laughs> I think I just do them for myself. Um, so if people were interested in getting involved mm. in science communication, um, what kind of things could they do? You mentioned before that they could do small work groups, but could they write things for the conversation? I know you've written uh, you know, yeah. quite a few articles for the conversation in ABC News. Yeah, conversation I think is an awesome place to start, um, especially for people in academia. Yeah. Um, you know, they're open to pitches. If you pitch them an idea, you can work with the editors. Sometimes the editor will approach you if they've got an idea for something in a particular space. Um, that's probably, I think, one of the best ways to do it. You know, there's opportunities like we're sitting here now, right now, doing podcasts. You can write um, stuff and post it on, on blogs and things. Yeah. It kind of takes time to learn how to do this. You know, the way you write something for public consumption is very different to what you would write in a scientific paper. Yes, I'd like to ask you about that. Did you practice or did it just come naturally? Because I did tweet about you this morning. One of my favourite articles that you wrote was, um, oh, I can't remember the name, but it's something along the lines of, I'm proud of my being a mediocre man. Yeah, yeah, right. You've got to embrace your mediocre Yeah, and it's, I've loved that. It's been my favourite article of yours for a while. And you write with such humour. Did that, does that just come naturally or did you have to practice? (laughs) It naturally. That, um, you know, those, that piece there took a lot of work to get the kind of voice, I guess, right. Yeah. So, you know, the way we write scientifically is horrific. You know, we write in, in, in these really detached terms. Yeah. We qualify everything we say. Um, it, it's, it's often in the, in the past tense. It's really a, a passive language. And so doing it for, for sort of more broad media consumption, I guess, um, you've got to flip things on the head and you've got to be very direct in what you say mm-hmm. and that's quite challenging for scientists because we're not used to talking like that. Um, I also have the good fortune of having some excellent editors to work with who help me to shape what I'm saying. Oh, you that's know? Great. So I just kind of put the string of consciousness down on the page and then, um, you know, for example, Hayley Gleason at ABC who helps edit those pieces for me knows exactly what to push. She's like, what do you mean when you say that? You've got to be more direct with that yeah. or put some statistics here or tell us how that makes you feel. So. You know, she's a, a master at drawing the information out in a way that people want to hear. So I kind of, I almost feel like those guys should get, you know, they should get their name on the, the top byline. Of yeah, well. that um, makes me feel so much better because I thought it all just came really naturally to you, and I've oh been no, like really, in, I've it's, been really intimidated by you going. I could never do that. It's really hard work, and you know the way I do it, and everybody's got their way of doing it. Um, you know, the first and foremost thing, you just got to start putting stuff on the page. Yeah. You, know, you just have to sit there, start putting some ideas down. Um, and what I tend to do is I go and do my research. I read all the things I need to read. I let it percolate in my brain for a little while. And I start to think of a, maybe a structure. Mm-hmm. And then I'll usually go for a really long run, a really long body surfing session or a really long bike ride and just let it kind of 
drift yeah. around in there for a while and then come home and I find that it's kind of laid itself out when I do that and so switching off actually helps to switch it on if that makes yeah, sense. Yeah, no, that's fantastic. I've actually heard that from a few people yeah. when I've been interviewing as well, so it's good to hear because yeah, I'm very good at switching off. Right, and the conversation, they have great editors there too who will help you. They'll help you Okay, say, I didn't know you that. You need to structure it like this. You know, you've got to, the way we write scientifically is you tend to fill in all the evidence and then right at the end you put in this grand conclusion and talk about the significance of what you've done. Yeah. You've got to flip that on its head. You write the other way around for public. Okay. The important part first. And do you need to come up with an idea or can you ask them for an idea and then write about it? No, you, you, the best way to do it would be to pitch an idea. So come up okay. with something you want to write. I mean, 800 words, there's only a few things you can fit into an 800 word yep. piece. And so, you know, pitch them an idea. Excellent. Um, and then once they know you can do it, they'll come back to you with requests as well. So. That's great. Good tips for listeners. Everyone should start writing for the conversation. Definitely. <laughs> Definitely. And what about radio and things like that? How did you get involved in that? And also I'd like you to touch on... What you told me before the podcast is that you got nervous at the start because <laughs> oh, yeah. I think that's good for Absolutely. people to know. Yeah, yeah. So nerves, you know, is part of the territory. Um, radio. I started doing radio through a Twitter friend, funnily enough, called Carol Duncan, who was on ABC up in Newcastle. She's now on the council of New, the Newcastle councillor. Oh, cool. Um, but she's she. Um, we met through Twitter. We started talking, and she said, "Oh, you should come on my radio show one afternoon. This cancer stuff sounds really interesting." And we just literally from there built up a relationship where every now and then she'd ring up and say, do you want to come on and talk about a topic of your choice this afternoon for, you know, 20 minutes or so? Oh, that's great. So you could get whatever message you wanted to get out there. Exactly, exactly. Or sometimes it would be in response to something else. And so that's what started it. And then I would occasionally off the back of that get asked to come and talk on somebody else's show. And then when you start writing things for the conversation or for ABC, they start to get picked up and people notice, well, this person's writing about this. That's an interesting story. Let's get them on to talk about it. Yeah. Um, and then the classic, the, the classic example where I started doing sort of more regular kind of just come on and talk about science thing um, happened a few years ago on Linda Mottram's show on ABC, and I noticed that Brian Gainsler, the physicist, Australian physicist, who's yeah. now over in Toronto, was doing a regular sort of slot on the morning show talking about just interesting astrophysics stuff. And I knew he was moving to Toronto, and I literally, I mean, this is, here he, he you go, this is embracing my white mediocre mates, right? <laughs> I literally emailed Linda and said, hey, if you're looking for someone to fill in for Brian when he's away, I'll, I'll have a shot at it if you like. Oh, that's like, so totally great brazen, of you. But, but totally brazen. I mean, who the hell was I to think I could pull that off, right? And to my horror and surprise, you know, Linda <laughs> said, great, sure, what are you doing next Monday? And it went from there. And then, uh, and then now, same sort of thing, I did the same thing for the one I do on Sunday nights now, I literally pitched it to the producers and said, hey, I'll come and talk about science. You do have a good voice for radio. Enjoy, I love it. We radio. don't all have that, that going fun. for us. <laughs> <laughs> no, but that's great. Like, you do joke a lot about the mediocrity, but I would actually disagree and say that you're not medio- mediocre at this and you are quite good at it. No, but, but it gets you... to the issue of confidence, right? Yeah, and that's what I was trying to dig yeah. out. It's confidence. Um, yeah, so I think maybe that's something that I yeah would want to get across across to people. I was saying to you earlier that this podcast terrifies me, but I still do it because I think it's important. So even though you think, why can I? What was I thinking? Yeah. You did it, and you did it well. I'm assuming I didn't see well, it. Well, they keep asking me back, so I must be doing something. That's okay. a good sign. Um, and I love doing it, but yeah, you've got to. I mean, you do. Obviously, it's confronting. It's yeah. quite intimidating to think how many pairs of ears are out there listening when you talk. Um, and you know, doing TV takes that to another level altogether. Um, I find for me the key is, you know, once you've done it a few times, you get more familiar with the surroundings and yeah. the sort of pace of how things work. You get more familiar with the format and you also start to build a rapport with the people who you do regular kind yeah. of interviews with and so you kind of get to know them. It's just like having a conversation, yeah. you know. And so I find that really helps. Um, but the main thing that I find is, if I, you know, I know if I'm underprepared, if 
if I'm going to talk on the radio for 40 minutes about science, there's roughly two or three hours worth of prep time goes into yeah. getting that ready. And if I'm underprepared, you know, if I've been at a barbecue on Sunday afternoon <laughs> and suddenly at about 8.30, I'm like, oh, I better get ready. That's not good. And that's when it makes you nervous because right. you're worried about the unknown. So preparedness is the key yeah. in that case. Okay, that's really good advice. Yeah. I do yeah. the same. Yeah. Exactly. exactly. <laughs> and now that you're not so nervous and you know to be prepared, is it also fun? You were telling me earlier you were on the drum last week. Yeah, it's great fun. I love it. Yeah. I so what do, you li- what do you like about it? What's fun? Um, I love it because there's a bit of a buzz about doing live radio or TV. You know, it's kind of, you get a bit of an adrenaline rush out yeah. of it. I won't lie about that. Um, it's fun because it's outside the normal comfort zone of sitting in an office or a lab doing really kind of staid research I kind of like that the one thing I really enjoy about it uh, you know when you write a scientific paper or a grant you, you write you put your heart and soul into this thing you send it off three months later you get back some peer review comments and it can be years from the time you've had the idea to writing something to getting it actually published or funded so true right whereas you know in that in that space of writing short articles or talking on the radio you, you might have 15 minutes between when someone calls to ask you to come on the radio and being on the radio and then it's done yeah so that i, I kind of like the balance of this horribly long time frame we have in science and the horribly confrontingly short time frame you have in media i like that it kind of yeah I, I, I hadn't thought of it like, about it like that but i like it <laughs> yeah and you kind of write it and you move on or you talk yeah. about it and you move on i kind of that's it's fun. You know? Unless to go on a podcast brings up an article from months ago. Yeah, well, that's okay. That, that actually happens though, right? Things burn along slowly. Like I think, I think the first thing I ever wrote for the conversation was about people getting honorary doctorates, like completely random stuff that just came out of a conversation I was having with a friend. And we said, oh, we should write this up. It's an interesting Well, you were discussing that at work the other day. What was your stance on it, pro or against? It depends on the context. I think there is a really strong point for recognising... Um, for recognising achievement and for universities embracing particularly alumni or, or using it as a way of saying this person has done something important and good. Um, it probably also helps the university attract funding from some, you know, they often uh, give recognition to philanthropy and things like that. Um, I have a bit more of a problem when it's done uh, kind of as a nod to a celebrity and then they start going around saying, well, I'm not a doctorate. And, you know, so a lot of universities in the US have stopped doing it for that reason. That is exactly the way our conversation went. Yeah, <laughs> you literally yeah. could have been in the room. That's exactly yeah, the conclusion yeah. we came to <laughs> last week. most people, I think, come to the... Yeah. Um, so I'm just conscious of time. So one thing I wanted to uh, just finish on... Um, oh, and I didn't prep you before, but at the end I usually ask people about their favourite book. Um, but okay. before that, um, I'm on the peer advisory uh, board for Franklin Women. Um, so um, women, um, re- you know, being represented in science, particularly in leadership roles, is a very important... Um, area to me and I know you've written several pieces on that and so I was just wondering what what made you start being sort of an advocate or you know more vocal about that aspect I mean the stats speak for themselves yeah um that you know women in science leadership are less than 20 percent I think yeah it's horrible I mean yeah it's statistics everywhere are horrible yeah um when did I first start getting interested in it was when I was on the uh board of the early mid-career researcher forum through the academy of science and we did a process where we sort of asked all the people we represented what they thought were important issues for us to advocate on and the top one was gender equity yeah. not surprisingly so we wrote a white paper and we lobbied quite hard for NHMRC to bring in um, you know gender equity policies in the institutions and people they were funding um, and so that sort of tweaked me to what was going on um, and you know once you see the problem and most blokes don't see the problem yeah obviously. I agree once you see the problem you can't unsee it 
and once you see it, you need to do something about it. So, um, you know, men built the system, so it's men's responsibility to fix the system, in my opinion. And um, so from that point on, it's just kind of built from there. And then when you start looking into the science of this, and again, you know, embrace the actual evidence. Yeah. Diversity brings better ideas. If you have more diverse people at the table, you will get a more diverse range of ideas. Absolutely. And you get better solutions to problems. And then there's the purely personal reasons of seeing my mates purely through a quirk of anatomy, not get where they should be in their careers yeah. and suffer these horrible kind of barriers all the way through. Uh, so partly professional, partly personal. Yeah, well, that's great. Thank you for coming on board. And I, I agree. I mean, you, don't, you, know, you don't do it to get a cookie. You don't get a cookie for being a good person <laughs> in research. It's, okay, I won't give you a cookie. There's professional reasons for doing it. Right? Yeah. It actually, it, it should drive It makes better science, science. Yeah. 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 It's also, I find, uh, well, I think, a huge financial drain. We're training all these women with all these skills. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, sorry, no cookie, but I yeah, think no it's great. Either. I think that it's great that you're on board. Um, and I did have another point, but I forget what it was. Oh, and just that I think sometimes, yeah, a lot of men don't see the problem. Um, but also I think when people think about feminism or things like, you know, frankly, women, it's, people get a thing in their head where it's very much like us against them. And it's really not. It's about all of us coming together. Um, so I really like the way you've put that. And I think, And I think that, you know, part of the reason is it's important to have males saying this as much as it is having females say it. Yeah, because it's fantastic. like it or not, a lot of the time people will listen, like a man will listen to another man saying something that you know would be ignored if a woman was saying it. And I can give you plenty of examples of things I've said and written where a female colleague or friend has said or written exactly the same thing and been absolutely eviscerated for it. Really? Whereas I can say it and it just, you know, it's, it's, it's just let through to the keeper. Sort so of it's still there. Absolutely, yeah. Uh, well, we might uh, end there. I'm just conscious of time. Thank you so much for your time today. Oh, no worries. And Thank I you. will just um, quickly finish with: Do you have a favourite book or something that's really inspired you or changed the way you've thought about the world? Oh wow! Sorry, um, I, I usually prep people. <laughs> I forgot. We'll have to edit. Can we stop for five? Yeah, seconds? Yeah, we can stop for five <laughs> seconds. All right, hang on. Let me think. Um, 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 um. Okay, here's one. I've got. Okay. So I can't even remember the name of this book, but it was one I read a couple of years ago, and it was a collection of Einstein's letters and writings that had nothing to do with science. So oh, that's a good one. Yeah, Einstein was a prolific letter writer. He was politically very active, um, and there's a really great, and I wish I could remember the name of it. Sure we can Google. Yeah, there's a great collection of these, and it really, I think, gets back to this point of you know, scientists not just doing science, yeah. but actually using that skill and that analytical power to sort of speak on more important issues more broadly, I think. So that's probably a good example and a good inspiration for everybody else. If it's good enough for Einstein, it's good enough for little old me. That was very good thinking on the spot. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I know you're very active on Twitter, so if anyone mm. wants to follow you or tweet you, what's your Twitter handle? Where is Daz? Excellent. And I really wish I'd have come up with something better. I hope the works. Well, thank you very much for joining us today. We really appreciate it. No worries. Thanks for having me. And I'll speak to you next time on Stories in Public Health.